0: Welcome back to Plastic Surgery Decoded, the podcast where we demystify plastic surgery and provide a foundation for understanding it, whether you're actually considering a procedure or you're just curious. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Regina Newhan, and in this season number four, you'll find a new approach, including interviews and covering a wide variety of subjects. But after you listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and really explore the previous seasons as they are full of valuable information. You get to pick and choose what to learn about next. Season one covers common aesthetic or cosmetic surgery topics and skincare, while season two explains reconstructive surgery topics. Then season three goes over general questions about plastic surgery. Remember that this podcast reflects my experience and opinion, as well as those of any guest interviewed. It is not intended to provide medical advice, nor is it a substitute for a formal consultation with your physician. So stay tuned for this interesting journey we'll take together in the ever-expanding world of plastic surgery. Let's go! The concept of revision surgery may seem a bit shrouded in mystery for some. What's it all about, and should you expect it with certain procedures more than others? Actually, it covers a broad category of situations and can range from little touch-ups to complete redos. Not only can there be different types of revision surgery, there can also be many different reasons why the need has arisen. Whether involving the face or body, we might categorize these needs into three groups. The first would be natural, inevitable progression of aging or gravity effects. The second would be related to a patient's perspective their personal taste or state of mind such as a changed aesthetic preference mismatched expectations from surgery or social situations negatively affected by the surgical outcome and thirdly the need for revision may also be directly associated with the procedure itself as with aesthetic contour irregularities unexpected scar problems functional problems maybe mechanical problems with implants or even rare surgeon issues And we know that while complications may not be common, they do exist. Revision surgery can require a fair amount of finesse. Therefore, it behooves both the surgeon and the patient to have a good line of communication, a solid surgical plan, and realistic expectations. Our discussion of this interesting and nuanced topic today is with Dr. James Grotting in Birmingham, Alabama, who is very experienced in the matter at hand. He shares the wisdom he has gained in his wide-ranging practice as a successful plastic surgeon and educator, spanning many years. Listen as he fills in the gaps about types and motivations for revision surgery, options and expectations, cost issues, and some final wise words. Let's pick it up at the beginning. would like to introduce our illustrious guest today. We have Dr. James Grotting, who is the past chair of the American Board of Plastic Surgery and past leader of the American Society of Plastic Surgeons and American Society for Aesthetic Plastic Surgery. He is currently a clinical professor of plastic surgery at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And he operates a private practice in Birmingham, Alabama and certainly he has numerous other research and educational contributions. Seriously, Jim, your resume could spill off the floor and out the door. Mm -hmm. Welcome to Plastic Surgery Decoded podcast.
1: Thank you, so good to be here with you.
0: Great. And I do want to also mention that, you know, our topic today is revision surgery. You actually wrote a textbook about reoperative surgery. Could you tell us about that a little?
1: Sure. It was a topic that I got interested in early on in my career. Uh, To be honest, it was um, Karen Berger, who was at Quality Medical Publishing at that time, approached me about putting together a book on a topic which wasn't discussed very often at our meetings. Uh, There weren't many publications on it. Uh, And it was a whole part of plastic surgery that was sort of talked about in the hallways among colleagues and so on but not out front where people could really learn very much about it, and there wasn't right. any central source uh, that people could refer to when they uh, encountered a, a thorny problem. And so in 1996, uh, after working on it for about three years, we published the first edition in two volumes called Reoperative Aesthetic and Reconstructive Plastic Surgery. And it was well received uh, to the point where I think many of the young plastic surgeons who were getting ready to take the oral board exams found it quite helpful to go through the book and um, gain more information and more experience with it. We did a second edition about ten years later.
0: Quite an accomplishment,
1: (laughs) but it uh, it kind of brought the topic into the forefront in our specialty. And I think uh, since that time, there's been a lot more. That kind of thing included in our in our meetings and uh, papers written on it uh, in journals and so on. Yeah, and so yes,
0: congratulations, and that's been such a help for so many physicians. Uh, and you also uh, founded an entity called cosmeure. Could you tell us about that?
1: Yes, cosmeticure was an attempt to sort of formalize a way in which unanticipated costs associated with complications when they occur after, aesthetic plastic surgery could be handled by a third party. And the concept was, well, everybody knows that your health insurance doesn't cover cosmetic surgery, but most people do not know that in the fine print, in many insurance policies, it also says that the health insurance will not cover the complications of cosmetic surgery. And again, it's a topic that should be addressed in every conversation with a Prospective patient of who's undergoing an operation, that there are always uh, complications that could occur. Although, in aesthetic plastic surgery, fortunately, they're rare, but they can generate a significant amount of uh, cost that sure. the patient may be anticipating. So, anyway, yeah. long story short, we started an insurance plan that will cover a patient for 45 days after their procedure. That's when most serious complications might occur bleeding, infection, uh, blood clot, those are things that are rare but can occur, and when they do, it's just a better way of handling the problem, and uh, we've been now um, operating for more than 20 years, and we've got many, many plastic surgeons who are members of the program and many hundreds of thousands of patients who uh, participate in it as well, so it's, uh, it's been a good thing, I think, for our specialty in terms of patient safety and peace of mind.
0: Yeah, it's a wonderful concept, and um, I know many people are grateful to you for establishing that, so that's fantastic. Uh, well, let me get uh, directly to some questions, but first of all, I would love for you to tell us how you became interested in plastic surgery.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit different uh, in that I tried every kind of which way not to become a plastic surgeon. Is that right? <laughs> why would I say that? Well, my dad was a plastic surgeon.
0: Oh, I don't think uh, I knew that.
1: He got interested uh, in plastic surgery during World War II. He was in France, oh, of course, uh, of Germany during the war. Um and was seeing a lot of facial injuries and so on. Uh, Thorny problems that really medicine didn't have any good answer for. He only lived until he was 52 years old. So I never really got to know him so much as a plastic surgeon. But I was always aware of the word plastic surgery and kind of what the specialty was. But like any young boy growing up, you kind of want to do something a little bit different than your parents that's right and so I thought I'd be a trauma surgeon I ended up training in general surgery at the University of Washington in Seattle and I got exposed to a very good hand surgeon there and uh, a guy who was beginning to do microsurgery this would have been in the late 70s early 80s and uh, I just found out that it was in my blood and that that was kind of destined for and so I ended up doing my training down uh, at the University of California in San Francisco with Dr. Harry Bunkey who's considered kind of the father of microsurgery.
0: Well, y- your career has had a wonderful trajectory, but currently, what type of patients or cases do you focus on mainly in your typical daily practice? Mostly aesthetic at this point? Yes,
1: it is. It's 100% elective aesthetic surgery. I, I did lots and lots of uh, you know, breast reconstruction. Um, you may know that I was one of the first, in the, the first in the world to do the free tram flap back yes. in 1997, uh, just fortuitously, and that uh, consumed my career for the next 15 years or so, uh, but a lot of those breast reconstruction patients ended up coming back having aesthetic surgery, and gradually, after 37 years, it's uh, it's kind of morphed into a Uh, 100% aesthetic practice, probably 60% is face, and about 40% breast and body, and a lot of the breast work is secondary, kind Mm -hmm. of revisional work. Gotcha.
0: Well, you know, of course, all plastic surgeons have had to do revisions periodically for their own patients, but your longevity in practice and your exceptional skills have really given you an excellent reputation in the plastic surgery world. I mean, pretty much you've seen it all. Uh, and that's why I really thought it would be ideal to discuss our topic today with you. Um, how much of your practice do you think involves seeing patients who were originally treated elsewhere but have come to you for revisions or second opinions?
1: I would say probably close to 30% of my practice wow. Is, wow. Is, um, involves concepts related to revisions and re-operations. Sure. It taps into creativity and innovation, you know, to solve those kind of problems.
0: Absolutely. That's part of the thought of it, but part of the challenge, too. <laughs>
1: so. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And you know all about that as well. Oh,
0: yes. Well, and regarding terminology, could you explain for the listeners, what do we usually mean when we say primary surgery versus secondary
1: surgery? Primary surgery, uh, at least as we think of it in plastic surgery, involves generally making an incision and and either moving tissues or moving through tissues that have not previously been violated. So the anatomy is predictable. There isn't any scar tissue. The blood supply is normal. And generally, there's a lot of information, even if you're doing an operation that you haven't done very often. You can go to a textbook or you can go to a video or something and you can pretty predictably prime yourself for getting through a primary operation without complications. A secondary operation, all that kind of goes out the window because the anatomy is altered, there's scar tissue, the blood supply may be be hampered, Uh, the tissues may not move the way they're supposed to, so there's a, a lot of challenge to planning a secondary procedure. Um, and it, it can oftentimes, you know, pre- prevent or pre- preclude you from doing an approach that you might be able to do as a primary operation, but you simply couldn't do safely uh, in a secondary situation.
0: Meaning you kind of have to come at it from a different direction, so to speak.
1: Right, yeah, yeah. For it's example, not straightforward. Correct, yeah. If you. Uh, say you were going back in to correct a hernia after a tummy tuck. Mm -hmm. Well, it may not be safe, you know, especially if that patient has other incisions on the abdomen, you know, be what we call a right subcostal incision. That used to be the old way of getting a gallbladder out, a long incision in the upper abdomen, and they may have uh, incisions from uh, C-section. They may have had an abdominoplasty. If you just... Uh, you know, make a random incision in the abdomen, you could cut off blood supply to areas of skin that could die. Uh, So you really have to think through exactly where the blood supply is going to come from, how these tissues are going to move, how you're going to do each stage of of a secondary operation like that.
0: You know, there are some nuances between revision surgeries that uh, are Caused by an unexpected outcome versus the natural settling of tissues with age and gravity, uh, eventually leading to, to consideration of revision surgery. Granted, this is a very global question, but do you find that um, either one of those two types of procedures is more difficult than the other? Uh, is it um, usually easier to go back and do a revision surgery for someone who's just, you know, settled with age and you're going to go back and redo things as compared to someone who's maybe had a complication or a problematic outcome and you're having to go back in uh, to rectify that?
1: Yeah. Well, it's a good question and it really has to do with the various types of reoperations or revisions yes and uh, you know you just mentioned two of them kind of the uh, you know the patient who has had a complication like bleeding or a patient who has had a wound come apart or a patient who has had infection and multiple failed procedures for example yes. you know versus the patient who, uh, who who comes back after a number of years with the tissues settled, Uh, kind of a continued aging process, and that patient generally comes in electively. They come in because they want another operation. Uh, They're kind of happy to know that something can be done. Many times you can sort of redo something similar to what you did the first time um, and uh, just kind of tuck things up, and the chances of having uh, another complication are a little bit increased, but not not as much as they are in the patient who has been multiply reoperated with multiple complications, you know. And then we have the whole, uh, the whole area of, of uh, planned reoperations. You know, for example, a patient who's undergoing staged procedures mm-hmm. like rebuilding a nose from the forehead. You know, there is a planned secondary operation whereby that tissue that's been turned down from the forehead uh, has to be divided and in inset. And uh, so we know we, we know that kind of, of patient and we can t- lay that out for them in advance. At three weeks, you're going to have this done. At six weeks, you're going to have this done. So the patient can be prepared for that. The patient who has a tumor that you take out and reconstruct that area is at risk for that tumor to come back so a secondary procedure might have to be done to treat the cancer and another big reoperation you know that has yeah. the chances of having a, uh, another complication associated with it or the patient that gets radiated you know the tissues may be sure. fine for a number of years but that continued biologic process of radiation may damage the tissues, create scarring, blood supply problems over the years. So Mm -hmm. these are, it's a whole spectrum of problems that we encounter as plastic surgeons, and every one of them has a little bit different solution. some much more difficult than others.
0: Absolutely, and I'm glad you expressed it that way because it really is a spectrum. And, you know, on the one end we're talking about some of the more serious situations that require, you know, perhaps multiple surgeries, et cetera. And then on the the lighter end, we have the little thing called the touch-up, you know, uh, where there may be just one little tweak or something that needs to be done and uh, to keep a patient happy or to get the result that you wanna see. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, all of us have those. Oh yeah. as much as we'd like to do, you know, kind of be one and done, uh, there are lots of situations where there's a little bit of extra skin here or a little widened scar there something that we can do to make a good result even better and so uh, I have a very low threshold to do that. Oh that's great.
0: Well let me ask you, let's kind of branch into timing of surgery. Um, now we've, we've talked about the patient who has naturally aged and tissues have settled and they come in on their own and you know that's, that's enough time when when they're seeing that kind of change and it's been a while that's enough time. What about the patient who may have um, an unexpected result or an unhappy result or even a complication that's going to require reoperation. What do you, I, I realize again it's this general question, but what do you typically tell them about timing? Do you, um, if it's not an urgent procedure, do you recommend they wait a year until tissue settle or what do you like to tell them?
1: Yeah, well I think the the, the one concept that I like for them to understand is that with any reoperation, there are three criteria that I look for, and the first one is that the patient has to be ready to have another operation. You know, psychologically, emotionally, financially, um, that there are lots of variables that go into when a patient is ready to go back under the knife. Uh, The second criteria is the surgeon has to be ready. I have to feel like I can get the result that I want with a very high degree of of, uh, predictability. Um, And the third most important factor is that the tissues have to be ready. And what do I mean by that? Well, the tissues should be soft and mobile and moldable and feel pretty normal, as good as they can get. And that may be three months, it may be six months, it may take an entire year for those tissues to really reach that point. It can differ from patient to patient and uh, operation to operation. But uh, in any event, the those three criteria need to be satisfied in order to kind of stack the odds in your favor mm-hmm. in the patient's favor of getting a good result. Yeah, I think that's an excellent way to look at it.
0: You know, I'm curious, do you think there are misconceptions among the general public about surgeries, assuming that all surgeries, particularly aesthetic surgeries, are one and done, so to speak?
1: Yeah, there's no question that some patients uh, come in uh, for, you know, having lost uh, 100 pounds or 150 pounds from gastric bypass. and. You know, they come in with a laundry list. They would would like to have their arms done and their breasts done and their tummy done and their butt lifted and their thighs uh, fixed and liposuction here. And, oh, by the way, if you could just fix my neck. And uh, not understanding that every one of those operations is a very significant undertaking. And when you combine different anatomic areas uh, and the length of time, blood loss, and so on, that uh, doing multiple procedures at the same time can entail. You can really put a patient in danger. Um, and I think uh, it's important, even though the patient has saved up a lot of money, they're ready to go, uh, you have to help them make the right decision about what is safe and put it together in, uh, in a way that, uh, above all, gets a patient through the procedure Uh, minimizing the risk of complications which require additional operations. And we know from the CosmetaSure data, we talked about the insurance plan in our insurance company early on. One of the side benefits of that is that we have the largest database of complication uh, incidents in the history of our specialty. You know, we Mm -hmm. have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of patients so we know now, by analyzing that data, what combinations of things uh, lead to an increased rate of complications, uh, what kinds of comorbidities, that is, what kinds of problems that the patient may have from the standpoint of their uh, medical health, what kinds of things may lead to a higher incidence of complications. So. That's all been published. Such helpful information. I think that's fantastic that you've
0: collated all of that wonderful data. Well, I'm glad that you brought up the massive weight loss patient because one of the things I found in my practice was those patients just tend to have attenuation or stretching back out of tissues a little more rapidly than the standard patient because the tissue is so used to the skin, was so used to being stretched and stretched. Uh, Did you find that in your practice when you would treat patients who had massive weight loss and resect excess skin and try to recontour for them? Did you often tell them, hey, we're going to do this, but you're probably going to, you know, after a while have to have a revision or want to consider a revision? What did you tell them?
1: Yeah, I think it's a it's a good point and it's important for patients to understand that skin is not like cloth where you can just, you know, trim it out and sew it up and it'll stay that way for a hundred years. You know. A, biologic organ that is responding to stresses and strains, and, and with massive weight loss, uh, the skin is damaged. All the elastic tissue has been stretched out, and uh, that skin is not going to uh, contract and stay that way like youthful, undamaged skin. So uh, I always tell those patients there, there's a pretty good chance. We're going to look at it at a year, Uh, And fortunately, you know, at that time, generally the secondary revisions are pretty straightforward, but it's surgery, you know. It is another operation. It's probably another anesthetic time in the operating room and so on. Uh, But to take a good improvement, a good result, and make it into a really excellent one, sometimes it's going to require a secondary removal of tissue or repositioning Mm of tissue. Mm -hmm. Makes sense.
0: And as you consider all of the procedures that you have performed throughout your practice, have you found that there are some certain categories or types of procedures that seem just inherently more prone to revisions for whatever reason? You know, body versus face, uh, maybe rhinoplasties or breast surgeries. What, what have you found in your own practice longevity?
1: Yeah, I think uh, that's an excellent question. And rhinoplasty just jumps into my mind because nose reshaping yeah yeah, it's uh you know as hard as we try to make the nose perfect in the operating room there are uh, there are variables that we can't completely control you know that cartilage which we put little stitches in to try to hold it straight will try to warp back to the way it was prior to surgery so even among the best rhinoplasty specialists in the world, they still have a revision rate of probably 15 20%, something mm-hmm. like that. So I always tell patients that generally that's a decision we're going to make at about a year. If there's something that needs to be tweaked, uh, you know, we'll talk about it then. But again, typically it's not that the nose has to be completely redone. It's a little, um, it's a little revision here or there. Sometimes it's more complicated than that. But Rhinoplasty is a big one. The other one is, uh, I think, patients that come in with breast asymmetry. They have a smaller breast and a larger breast, or they may have what we call a tuberous-shaped breast on one side or both sides. You know, those patients are are ones that have a little higher revision rate. I usually tell them, you know, it can be between 25 and 40 percent, depending on. Um, Um, what the what the situation is and it's just a a fact of life that we have to address and it's important for patients to understand that doctors to discuss that because uh, you know if you don't and the patient at six months is coming back and saying I'm not happy with this at all they lose confidence in their plastic surgeon and end up in somebody else's office get
0: frustrated sure Uh, so with your initial consultations with all your patients uh, how do you typically explain that further procedures may be needed?
1: Well, I'm just very honest about it. You yeah. know, I'll, I'll just say that you know this particular kind of problem, not just in my hands, but if you you know look and see what's written about this by all of the best specialists in the world, we all anticipate that a certain number of times you know revisions have to be done. But if that happens, You know, then generally, I think most patients are okay with it. They've been told about it. As long as you lay out a sensible plan, strategy, and timeline for how it's going to be handled. Mm -hmm. And I think if the patient knows that at three months we're going to look at it, and then we can make a decision, and the options are probably going to be one of these two things, you know, it's an honest addressing of what you know, are the possibilities and then creating a a plan and timeline that the patient can refer back to.
0: I think that those are wise words and and, uh, sometimes the trick is having a patient understand what you're telling them and having them be receptive to that because they're so excited coming to your office about the concept of uh, feeling better about themselves, you're going to perform this surgery and it's gonna be wonderful and then they don't always wanna hear that uh, you may have to, you know, have revision surgery at some point.
1: And, you know, we all have those situations where we have an unanticipated and unexpected outcome. Sure. It just didn't turn out the way that you or I wanted it. And, you know, in that situation, uh, it may be helpful to refer the patient to another plastic surgeon um, who you know is good, who has good judgment, who can... Uh, can see the patient, and, uh, you know, give another opinion, uh, Mm -hmm. or or just, you know, uh, help reassure them that this kind of thing happens, that your original plastic surgeon is entirely capable of fixing this, and uh, that, you know, that, and I see patients like that who come to me, and they've kind of lost confidence, and they just want to know, is this, did I make a mistake with my initial choice of plastic surgeon? is he competent can he you know can he can this be fixed and usually it's something that I have to say absolutely your plastic surgeon is able to fix this you know and I, I may call the plastic surgeon and tell him that I saw the patient and uh, nice. you know here are my here are my thoughts about it and and, and so on so you know it's a small community and, and uh, to be collegial with your colleagues uh, okay. can help you and help the patients yeah.
0: Sometimes do you think decisions for desire for revision surgery, whether it be just a touch-up or something larger, you think it sometimes depends uh, in part on the aesthetic outcome threshold, if you will, of either the surgeon or the patient, and and those standards may differ to some degree.
1: Yeah, I I think that uh, is another important topic uh, because occasionally you will get a, a patient who you may have thought, kind of had the proper expectations that were aligned with yours, but you come to find out that that patient is not going to be satisfied when you think it's a pretty good result. And you may even go ahead and try to improve it, and there's still an issue, and still an issue, and they want more and more and more. and Generally, they're going to want that at no charge. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so The finances do play a role. It's one thing if an insurance company is paying for a revision. It's another thing if the patient has to pay for it. And usually, you know, my policy is that if I think that I've gotten significant improvement in the initial operation and I'm trying to make a good result even better, well, that patient may need to expect to pay for that and Mm -hmm. pay for the operating room and anesthesia. If it's just not up to my standards, and I feel like I do not, I'm not happy with this, I think it needs to be fixed, then I will always fix those uh, kinds of situations uh, at no charge. Mm -hmm. Although there are situations where I I can't control the operating room and the charges from the uh, anesthesiologist, so the patient may have to bear those costs, depending on the situation. But Mm -hmm. there are patients who are never going to be satisfied. Uh, there's even a psychiatric condition, as you know, Regina, That's called uh, body dysmorphic disorder, where uh, it's a psychiatric uh, psychosis, really, or neurosis, where uh, you know, a patient may focus on a body part as being the reason for many areas of dissatisfaction in their life. Mm-hmm. And they think that if I can just get this fixed, then my whole life is going to be better. My marriage, my relationships, my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact of the matter is, if the you go down that quote rabbit hole, uh, many times those patients then move their concern to another body area, and they just don't get better with with plastic surgery. So mm-hmm. you know, we try very hard to, you know, spot those patients in advance. And uh, you're doing them a disservice if you if you operate on them until they're. Uh, until they've been treated and are stable for a long period of time.
0: Yeah, and sometimes that's tough to recognize. And
1: It is. Absolutely. A
0: challenge. You know, I'm curious, as we're talking about um, interviewing patients and counseling patients for what to expect, how do you handle counseling a patient about revision surgery when emotions are high, their anxiety is high? You know, that does happen occasionally. Is there... Anything you can tell them or describe it in a certain way to kind of put them at ease to some degree and um, come to a consensus.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's an art form. It really yeah. is. And I think it's important for patients like that uh, to encourage them to bring a, a spouse in or a significant other or uh, a trusted friend. And that's a time when you need to become a very good listener. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that is treatment in and of itself, to just put aside the time to sit and, and uh, listen to what's on the patient's mind, what other things are going on in their lives. What are they worried about? Is it the pain? Is it uh, that they might not get the kind of outcome that they thought? Is it financial? Oftentimes, you know, by just sitting there and, uh, and listening, you can develop a plan which can address the reasons why that patient is is emotional and that's not the best time to operate on the patient you know when their emotions are high and uh, you know when they're they're really struggling to bring their emotions on, under control so you know i had a patient not too long ago who wanted a facelift and i saw her and we scheduled it and uh, it was about six months later when her operation was scheduled. And during that time, her husband got a diagnosis of uh, cancer. Oh. And so she was really focused on going ahead and having her surgery. Uh, and when she came in and told me that, about what was happening, I told her, listen, you know, I know you're going to be disappointed, but this is not the best time to have that kind of operation one of these days absolutely for sure we will we will do that for you and i really think you're going to get a great result but to get the very best result the timing has to be right and and i really encourage you not to have it at this time and and i saw her then 6 months later her pay, her her husband passed away 6 weeks oh later yeah. and she would have been freshly operated she would have felt Terrible. really Self-conscious about uh, you know having spent time that she could have spent with him, recovering from surgery that you know some would consider vain, and so on. So eventually we did her operation, and at a time when she was uh, recovering from all of that, but um, but she was highly emotional, you know, when I saw her the first time. That's so
0: why is uh, advice? You've got to be Martin. a little
1: bit of a psychiatrist yes. as well as.
0: Yeah. A, but- well, I'm curious, are there um, situations where a patient may have had too many revisions already and you just have to say no? I know, it's a tough one. but
1: Yeah, well, there are certainly situations where, in my view and in my experience, I do not have the skills mm-hmm. to make them predictably better. As a matter of fact, I, I could end up making somebody worse. And if I think there is a, a plastic surgeon or a specialist in that particular area that has the skills, has the experience, and that I really think can can handle that, I have a very low threshold to try to get that patient into somebody else's office. So I know what I I know what I can do, um, and I know generally what the chances are of getting somebody through safely with a great result and if i don't feel comfortable that i can do it then i'm not uh i'm not going to take that on now sometimes patients look at me and say what do you mean you you know you're the oldest guy in town you you've written books you've given lectures you know you're you're highly regarded in your specialty what you can't fix this and i say no uh you know there are areas where i feel very very uh, comfortable, and I know that I can fix something, and there are other areas where I just can't. And, uh, you know, I think for patients to to know that, hey, this guy's human. He's telling me something honestly. He's not just take, looking to take my money, you know. So I think that's that's helpful to patients. It, it kind of brings the reality of the situation into sharper focus.
0: I think it shows respect for the patient, too, that um, you yeah. care about their outcome and their life, and you want the best for them.
1: That's how I feel as well. I uh, appreciate that. You know, those patients become <laughs> become friends, and they become, you know, they they stay in the practice for for other things and other other reasons because they they feel like they can trust the information that's coming from me or my staff. Absolutely.
0: Well, uh, just a couple more questions as we finish up, and I'm I'm curious if you have any story about uh, particular patients, revision surgery, perhaps treated elsewhere and came to you, something that um, ended up with a, a wonderful outcome and really made a difference in their life?
1: It's a, a situation that I face very commonly, oh, quite often, quite awesome. Regine. You know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's one of the things that has made my career so satisfying. It's one of the things that I enjoy the most is to you know, uh, meet somebody who does have a difficult problem that may have been operated on before and come up with a different way of approaching it, fix it, and, you know, have them leave my, leave my office or leave my practice uh, really thrilled with with the outcome. I, I, you know, it's not like I can bat a, a thousand, but, but generally uh, the ones that I take on, uh, I have a, a pretty good track record for being able to fix. So, Honestly, my book is full of those patients. Yeah. You know, a lot of them ended up in the book because they're difficult problems. Uh, many of them are breast-related uh, breast patients who had had attempts at breast reconstruction. Um, and I, I'll say one thing about that. I think the, the worst thing that you can do as a plastic surgeon when you see a situation like that is to assume that, the plastic surgeon who operated on the patient to begin with was simply not as skilled or competent as you, and that if you if it had just had been done better, it the outcome would have been different. You, Louis as used to my professor used to say, you know, uh, if Plan A didn't work, don't make Plan B the same as Plan A. Right. Uh, don't just assume that you can do it better than the original plastic surgeon because many times there are other variables that created the outcome that didn't have to do with the way the surgery was done, but probably more likely the surgical plan. And so, you know, that's where uh, I've really res- gotten a lot of enjoyment out of my practice is to come up with a little different way of approaching some something, a different kind of plan, something that I think are, again, are going to stack the deck in our favor of, of getting a good outcome. So uh, I, I enjoy that kind of vision.
0: Having a happy patient walk away has got to feel good.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: That's wonderful. Well, you've been so generous with your time here and sharing your expertise and your experience. We really appreciate it. I'm just wondering if you have any lasting thoughts you'd like to leave the listeners with about uh, our subject today, revision surgery.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a really uh, brilliant subject for uh, for a podcast or for uh topic that needs to be discussed more and and understood more among uh, patients seeking plastic surgery because, you know, with social media the way it is, patients almost get the idea that going in to have plastic surgery is like going in to just get your hair done. You know, you just just walk in and you pay some money and you you walk out uh, with an absolutely spectacular result and there's no pain and there's no... Uh, no risk of complications, and so on and so forth. It's just not the way it is. You and I both know that. So I think, uh, you know, if, if patients go in to, if anybody listening to this podcast goes in to see a plastic surgeon about an operation, make sure they ask about, okay, what can go wrong? And if that something happens, if something goes wrong, how are we going to fix it? How are we going to approach it? What are we going to do to, to to make it right? And what are the chances of that, of that happening? Mm-hmm. Have them show you pictures of, of an average result, of a good result, of a of a poor result, and uh, make sure that they are are properly informed about about good outcomes and bad ones. Um, Generally, the, the good plastic surgeon is going to freely discuss those things but have a plan in mind as to how to address them and how to, how to fix them when things don't go right. So uh, if you don't leave somebody's office having a lot of confidence that that person is going to be with you holding your hand through the whole process till the, the very end, then the best thing to do is to possibly go see somebody else. That's very insightful and such wise advice. Thank you.
0: All right. Well, thanks for being with us here today.
1: I've enjoyed it, and you're doing a great service to the public to continue to educate people about plastic surgery.
0: I appreciate that. Thank you. Take care.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Well, that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something, too. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Please share this podcast with someone else who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out the podcast website for related topics to explore. It's www.plasticsurgerydecoded.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Plastic Surgery Decoded.